Hello, hello, this is Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and you're listening to Cheap Talk. It's time for some Cheap Talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. Welcome back to Cheap Talk, your favorite Cheap Trick podcast. I think we're the only Cheap Trick podcast or dedicated Cheap Trick podcast, right, BJ? Yeah, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's so good to be here again. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Hello there, ladies and gents. I am Ken Mills, and I'm, as usual, joined by Brian Cramp. You stole my intro. We'll do it anyway. I always say hello there, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> well, far from me to step on your bow tie, so there we go. Hello, how are you? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Today we have a very special guest on our show from the Rock and Roll Residency, from the Gene Simmons Band, from the Ace Frehley Band, from so many cool things, Ryan Spencer Cook. Welcome to Cheap Talk, sir. Hello there, everybody. How are you? I'm happy to be here. We are glad to have you here. And on our last episode, we had one of your fellow the Rock and Roll Residency guitarist and vocalist, Jeremy Asbrock, and he talked about the first Cheap Trick album, and you're here to talk about your personal favorite Cheap Trick album, the second Cheap Trick album, and it, it's a, such a great album. For those who don't know, I'm sure if you see the show notes, we're talking about In Color Today, recorded in 1977, released in September 1977, recorded at Studio Cundin Records in Los Angeles. This album only lasts 31 minutes and 50 seconds, and I'm sure that we're going to talk a bit longer than that, right? So, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. This album was produced by the great Tom Werman, and this album is considered a classic of the power pop genre, and the album is ranked number four on Shake Some Action, the Ultimate Power Pop Guide. In 2003, the album was also ranked at number 443 on Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. And I personally would rate it higher, but Ryan, before we get going to talk full blast about this album track by track, I want to know a little bit about you and then tell us about your personal cheap trick history. Sure, absolutely. Uh, one thing that I think will make a lot of sense with people who are Cheap Trick fans, um, first of all, I, we all recognize that they're super famous um, and well-known worldwide. So that's no surprise right there. We know that. But the one thing that I do think is going to resonate with a lot of the fans is uh, I grew up in Topeka, Kansas, which is smack dab in the middle. Kansas is as Midwest as it gets. I actually call it Central America because it is right in the middle of America. <laughs> in the United States mm -hmm. and cheap trick, you know, formed not too terribly far from me in uh, Illinois in Rockford. So growing up where I did, uh, even though I was born in late 69, I'm basically a seventies kid and cheap trick to me owned the seventies with just a small handful of a few other bands. So being in the Midwest, um, cheap trick at Budokan, just like kiss alive, just like Lizzie's live and dangerous, those were standard issue where I grew up, meaning if you were a rock fan, we all had that record. We all had Budokan. And part of the reason that we all loved it so much was just because not only did it have great music, it also just, you know, we knew that they were a Midwest band. 
And it was great having, you know, something that you could kind of feel like was your own because Kiss was New York. You know, the uh, the British stuff was obviously from England, from London, from outside the U.S. And Cheap Trick was just kind of something that you could kind of call your own. They were closer than Aerosmith were in Boston. They were closer than Kiss was in New York. They were closer than the California bands. And that's just part of the reason I think that it resonated so well with us. Everybody in my grade school and junior high classes had Cheap Trick records. And it just resonated with all of us. We, lo- we loved it so much. It's good Midwestern, you know, meat, potatoes, rock and roll, pop music. And they have that Midwestern work ethic, too. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the three of us could talk about it forever because we were so well read. You know how much that they did tour and just, you know, basically they were a little gang of their own that, you know, would pool all their money and do everything they could just so they could play and keep doing it. And man, the talent in that band is just what pushed it over the edge along with the work ethic. It's just awesome. Good guys. Agreed. 100%. And there was also, you know, going back into like my personal history with the band is that like at the time kiss was like this huge mammoth thing. It was getting to be like, too big for itself in a way right you know what i'm saying it was it was like we we're getting into the solo albums and it just seemed like kiss was losing something right and at that point cheap trick popped yeah and it was just so fantastic to find this very weird quirky band that had elements of all these great things absolutely now as i mentioned we had your partner jeremy asbrock on the last episode and phil shouse is coming up to talk about heaven tonight when we were all in nashville we we made this plan to do this and it works out perfectly because this turns out it, it this is your favorite cheap trick studio album so what is it that you love so much about this record well you know what um i will tell you this and this is the, the reason why is uh budokan was my first cheap trick record that i owned okay mm-hmm and largely in part, and I think that I think that is the same for a lot of people. You have to realize I was, like I said, I was probably, you know, seventy-seven. I was my birthday is December nineteenth, so you can see my age. I was a young kid, but I want you to want me was just everywhere on the radio. Ubiquitous. There you go. There you go. My sister and I uh, got the Budokan and listened nonstop. I mean, just nonstop. We actually had to buy a couple of copies of it that we listened to it so much. And I tore up the booklet in the first Budokan record anyway, and made posters of it. So we needed one that was stay intact. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, uh, if you realize, if you look at it, that was basically Budokan, that record, that was basically the tour for the in color album. And half the tracks that are on Budokan, five of those tracks are from in color. So that was kind of my introduction to was, where did these songs come from? You know, what, where clock strikes 10, I want you to want me, all that kind of stuff. Or, or, and, uh, hello there. Everything. It's like, where did these come from? Well, that led me back to In Color. So I kind of did it in reverse. And that's what got my attention to that record right away was just Live at Budokan. Um, and then once I got it, just hearing everything so clearly and differently. And that was kind of my introduction as to what a live record was versus what a studio record was. And, You know, you mentioned the running time earlier is right under 32 minutes, which was basically, which was all the Kiss records were up to that point. Mm -hmm. You know, they were short records with 10 or 11 great songs. And this was just no different. 
and God, just the hooks and the songwriting and the playing. And it, it just, I just was sucked in so quickly just because it was just, just so good. Everything was so singable, you know, and I can remember riding my bike to the neighborhoods and everything when I was a kid and just not just me and my bike and that's it. And having those songs running through my head constantly, it really was the soundtrack of my childhood. Just such a good record. Agreed. 100%. For example, you mentioned what was on Budokan. If you take a look at what made up the, that album without this album, that's pretty much an empty record, right? (laughs) Like I said, that was the tour supporting in color. And, you know, even though it was in Japan and everything, it's kind of like, you know what? And the thing was, you know, the three of us like Kiss so much. Uh, we always tend to draw parallels to other bands with them. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you the one thing, maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't agree. Nothing really largely happened on a, on a national worldwide basis until there was a live version of rock and roll all night. Right. Then people went and bought that. Then they started here and watching you and firehouse and deuce and all that. And then they went backwards and they got the record, but rock and roll radio helped break kiss with that one record, man. Same thing with, I want you to want me, you know, that they didn't have as many albums under their belt before that live record, like kiss did, but man, it forced people or just gave people the opportunity to learn more about cheap trip because they bought that record. And I want you to want me did for cheap trick. What, the live version of rock and roll and I did for kiss. And then it followed with surrender and so on and so forth. Ain't that a shame? It just, you know, Oh God, it's just awesome. And it's amazing that parallel of three studio albums, then a killer live album, which broke them. It's, it's just, you know, how often do you run into that? That exact same story. Oh, I know it. But today we're going to be talking about the In Color album proper. And while a lot of people's favorite versions of these songs may live on the Live of Budokan album, today we're talking about them in context of the original 1977 In Color album. So we're going to kick it off with track one, Hello There. thoughts on hello there well i've read this a few times and i read it so many times that i want it to be true (laughs) about this song (laughs) you know what a great record opener album opener because it's saying hello to everybody what a great live show opener because it's saying hello to everybody uh but the story that i love about this song so much is the build-up the drums then the guitar then the bass then the vocals, everything comes into play one at a time separately. It literally build, it literally builds. And the story is that that song was kind of developed out of them being what's uh, as an opening actor in the early days, not having a lot of time to sound check. Uh, sometimes a throw and go situation, meaning no sound check. And even one later days, it gave the sound man time to get this, the band mixed as it got live because it was one instrument coming in at a time. So here go, come the drums. Okay, 
I've got those on the faders. Okay, here comes guitar. Let me mix that in a little bit. Okay, here comes the bass. Let me mix that in. Here comes Robin with his guitar and the and the vocals. Okay, everything's up and running during a live show. And it's a great sound check song. And it's a great way to start if you didn't get that full sound check or you really wanted to dial the band in. And it's always rumored that that song was kind of, you know, patterned around that. And it was always a good sound check for a song for them besides the message, hello there. I love that story so much, I want it to be true. And I wish they would have had the foresight on In Color to end the record with good night now, <laughs> you know? Because <laughs> yeah. then it would have made just perfect sense. I would have loved it. Brian, your thoughts on hello there. Yeah, it's great. It's really fun. Um, our friend Brad Elvis has told the story because he was a big Cheap Trick fan from back to the beginning, from the club days. And he has talked about how they always had like an intro for the live show that developed, you know, and eventually, you know, became hello there. And he talks about how the what is um, Eau Claire at the end of Heaven Tonight, that was originally, that was their intro before Hello There. And they kind of turned that into Hello There. That's how he has described it on Facebook. Yeah, so exactly like Ryan's saying, they wanted something at the beginning to kind of get the level set, you know, let the, let the guy at the soundboard, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, line everything up. I think Tom Werman says this is his favorite cheap trick song. And so when he went to see them, when he was scouting them to, to sign them to the label, you know, they opened the show with this and they had him hooked immediately because <laughs> he loved this song. So and I just think what a, what a good way to say, Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, that's, that's cool. Well, I, th I, I think, just... you know, like, uh, like basically Jack Douglas picked what songs were on the first record. And so I'm not sure. Because they had such a cachet of songs. I'm, I think Tom Werman probably had a lot to do with what songs ended up on this record. And so maybe with a different producer, they don't even put this on the album because it was just kind of like their song to start the show, but it wasn't really a, that serious of a song, you know? So because Tom Werman liked it so much, that might be why it's even on here at all, you know? Could be. And just what a great message to start the show. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready to rock? Are you ready to rock? It's just like, <laughs> what, a, what a great way to start a rock show. And it's got such a classic Rick Nielsen riff, in, you know, too, that's just kind of like sums cheap trick up. Yeah, it's really, it's got all the personality of the band that in that, too. Mm -hmm. Very good. Well, now we're going to turn our attention to the second track, and, you know, Every red-blooded American male loves a nice set of big eyes. So let's talk about one of my favorite songs, Big Eyes. thoughts on big eyes it, just great i mean and that's it's one of the ones that i actually enjoy 
the studio version of this song more than I do the uh, recorded live version, just because sonically it's so big. And uh, it's got that really cool circular guitar riff at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, you know, the, well, that circular guitar riff is going, and then it's a, just a little bit later, Tom Peterson really makes his entrance because, you know, his sound is so unique with the 12 string bass and everything. And just like the gain stage that he would put on his on his uh, rig, it's such a muscular bass line that joins that circular guitar riff. And, you know, besides the melody and the lyric, instrumentally, what's going on? Like, I think I would enjoy this song as an instrumental version too, just to dig how Tom and Rick play off each other. And it's one of the, there's a couple things on this record, but it's one of the few rare whammy bar appearances by Rick Nelson. <laughs> did you, did you, did you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And one of the things I love about cheap trick is that whether they're doing a ballad or whatever, but they have this way, Rick has this way of making this sinister sound. Like there's something going on that, is counterpoint to the words, you know what I mean? I'm because you, you hear that this thing that it sounds like something sinister is going on musically, right? Mm-hmm. But the words are really talking about this girl's big eyes, and but there's this weird tension to the music. Do you pick up on that at all, Ryan? I could not have nailed it better. I mean, you make a really, really good point there because knowing that we were going to talk about this today. Uh, as I was doing things this morning, I put the LP on again and man, you just, I noticed the exact thing thing you're talking about. There's a very, he has a really good talent and a really good knack for this song in particular of just creating tension and an ominous feeling. And then Robin Zander comes and contradicts the whole thing in such a beautiful way. Absolutely. It's awesome. You nailed it, man. I've picked up on that, and I thought of that less than two hours ago when I was listening to this again. Really good point. And it's weird because that's, I mean, Cheap Trick is is like a, a study in contrast all the way around. Whether it's their image, you know, because you've got the different looks within the band, within the same band, and then the, the same thing with a sound uh, texture, if you will. And I just love that tension that Rick is able to bring somehow, some way, even to the sweetest songs. I mean, it's in voices, it's in, you know, so many of their songs, there's just that edge that sets Cheap Trick apart from just about anything else. Brian, your thoughts on Big Eyes? You talked about how this is ranked highly as a power pop record, but this ain't a power pop song. You know, this is a metal song, practically. This is a heavy, hard rock song with massive riffs, you know? And, you know, we've talked a lot about how Tom Werman gets a lot of criticism from certain people for the production on this record. I love the production on this record, and this song, you know, sounds amazing. And... I mean, yeah, maybe it could have been a little heavier, but given the time that this came out, this is a heavy song, you know, very heavy song and probably a very influential song. We know what an influential band they were. And you have a song like this that's surrounded by a lot of what they call power pop. But you've got, you know, they sneak in a song like this. That's just a heavy, you know, riff driven song. It's one of my favorite cheap trick songs for sure. Mm-hmm. Very good. The third track, Downed.
third track, Downed. We talked earlier about the tension and the study in uh, contrast, right? This is one of the happiest songs about suicide I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) And it's such a weird study in things. Uh, Ryan, your thoughts on Downed? They made it no secret how much they love the Beatles. Mm Mm-hmm. And just, you know, everything from the, the intro, there's like a, if I remember right, there's a really cool flange yeah, on the guitar at the beginning of this one. And um, very atmospheric. That's the word I can come up with, with, right, with right now. And it just gives such a Beatlesque feeling to it. And I love that flange part. I was, even though I'm not a huge effects guy myself, uh, as far as what I do live personally, um, I'm always really, really aware and recognize when really cool effect things are happening with guitars and instruments on records. And that one just stands out as one of my favorite flange flanges of all time. You know, some people think of that flange on the beginning of uh, a lot of Van Halen stuff on ain't talking about love, whatever this one kind of stands out to me is that, um, but you know, going back to what you said earlier about the lyric, when I was a kid, I don't really think that I, completely understood what the song was about and i actually took a note of my favorite lyric in this song and it's um and he says oh you think of jesus christ you walk on water but don't bet your life mm-hmm. all you walk is a fine line it's such a strange strain on you and as the years went on and i just still and just even the way he delivers that oh you think you're jesus christ that thing you know mm-hmm. it just always stuck out to me and just just the conviction he delivers the lyrics with in this song, I think, is uh, even more so than the flange at the beginning. I just think his vocal delivery on this is just top notch. It's got conviction. It's got attitude. It's always got a great melody that he's he's got to make great melody like he always does. But that one little part of that line just always stuck out to me. And I think it meant different things to me in my life. Mm-hmm. But just the delivery on this. I just love his vocal delivery. I think it's great. I love the whole song, but that's the thing that stands out to me is just the way he sang it. It, it, meant, it was You could tell it was supposed to mean something, even though I don't think I understand I understood it my whole life, especially when I was young. Yeah, Robin, Xander, you can't say enough good about him. Uh, he's just about perfect as a vocalist for just about any style of music. And this is one of those times where you're seeing Rick Nielsen like use Robin as his voice, right? You know what I'm saying? Even though I feel like you kind of might hear Rick doing some backing vocals in this, but you've always got that feeling that Rick really relishes this relationship that they have as a writer and a vocalist where he's able to do this, the the things that he never really could feel confident enough to do because Rick can sing too, but it's almost like a situation like in the who where once Pete Townsend had Roger Daltrey, he knew that he could write and and he could make those things come true. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Brian, your thoughts on Downed? Yeah, I love it. It's a brilliant song. Um, I think this is a, a pretty major collaboration with Tom Werman. Um, I think like the, the intro part was new, I think, to the song from how they had done it live because Tom Werman felt like it needed something else and Rick came up with that. I think that's how it went because um, this actually, 
like I have a live show when they played Mother's Day in 1975 and they opened the show with this song and this was kind of their intro song and they started with this it's like they lifted the riff from Do Ya the Move ELO song so the song was it didn't have that it didn't have some of the elements that ended up on the record here I th- it's more much more atmospheric here so I think Tom Werman uh, kind of encouraged Rick to to make to make the song more atmospheric and to add something to it. You know, they Rick used to do this thing early on where they he didn't they wouldn't get to the chorus of the song until the end of the song. Like if you listen to Come On Come On, the ardent demo that's on the Epic Archives, you you'll hear that where you know the it, it, when you would get to the chorus after the first verse, they don't do it. They go into the second verse and they don't get to the chorus till the end. Like, that's actually how I want you to want me was. I think, yeah, it was Bruce Dickinson. When we had him on, he produced the reissue of the first album. And he told us about how that version of I Want You to Want Me that's on the, as a bonus track, it didn't have the chorus after the first verse. So they edited it in there because, you know, to make it work. And Surrender was the same way when originally. And you can hear on that live version from 75 of this song, you hear that, that they don't get to the down, down part until the end of the song. It's really, it's really weird how Rick arranged his songs early on. But, um, so this is, I think this version on the record probably sounded pretty different to cheap trick fans who had been seeing them do this song live for a few years because, uh, Tom Werman worked with Rick and they, they, yeah, they, I mean, they made such an amazing song here. I think this is a song that, is really beloved by cheap trick fans. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, it's funny. I was funny. I want to interject one thing, if you don't mind. Is um, Brian? You you brought up Tom Wormer a lot, and I absolutely love this record, and I love his work on this record. And uh, it's funny because over the years I've read stuff, and I think you guys are more well read about the band than I am. But you know, it's been rumored or written here and there that there was some tension and that it was more Tom's record in some places than their record and that kind of thing. Did they, did I, I heard, did they in fact re-record this record years later? Yes. And it has yet to be officially released. Re-record it. Yeah. 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 I haven't heard that. Oh, it's out there. Okay. It, it, when you hear it, it's basically the band playing the record live in the studio. There's really no overdubs or anything. They did it with Steve Albini. The band decided 20 years later that they weren't happy with the production on this record, but <laughs> I think that's a lot of hindsight is 2020, which we've sure. talked about. We've talked about that a lot on the podcast. I mean, you know, we always laugh and say they were so unhappy with Tom Rimmett's production that they did the next two records with him. You know, yeah, exactly. We always say, exactly. But, yeah. 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 Well, anyway, I interjected, but yeah, I, I, even though I knew that it, there was no release, official release of that. Like you said, I'm sure if I, if I barely start digging, I'll find it. So I have to do that this afternoon. You know, this kind of brings us into the next song. I want you to want me the studio version from in color.
I Want You to Want Me. And, you know, there's this controversy with the band as far as Tom Warman's work, but I wonder if it really comes down to this song. Because what this song became on Budokan is more like what the song probably should have been. I really wonder if it just comes down to this because the rest of this album is so glorious and so full of greatness. And I think that they might look back on this and say, see, this should have been what it became on Budokan. Your thoughts, Ryan, on I Want You to Want Me, the studio version from In Color. I'll tell you this. From the way that you set it up, I must tell you that I am a big fan of both versions of this song. <laughs> I really I really am. I heard the live version first, and I agree with you 1 million percent in your thoughts or just your take on it that this is that how they that was how they originally heard the song because you have to hearing the song there's really no other way they could have performed it than the way they did on Budokan live. Mm-hmm. Because the studio version is so do you guys remember Shaky's Pizza? Did you ever hear that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I was a kid, for the people that don't know it in the Midwest, there was a place called Shaky's Pizza, and everybody that worked there were dressed like guys in barbershop quartets. They had the straw hats. Uh, I even think the logo was a guy in a straw hat with a big curly mustache and the, and the pink and white striped shirt, right? Yep. And you yep. go into Shakey's and there was always a player piano playing and player pianos are the ones that played on a scroll yep. and the keys actually moved. And it had a, a Shakey's pizza player pianos have a very distinct sound. And I always thought of that when I heard this piano in there and it's just so different because it's not a rock version. They're, they're polarly opposite takes on the song. And I really truly do love them both. And I appreciate them both for what they are, but I do think Ken, you may have nailed it to where out of the 10 songs, they looked at one and said, everything was a hit, but boy, Tom, that was a miss on the way we recorded it. I do completely understand and think that maybe you have a really good point and a good case there that that could have happened. But man, I love that version, and I love the piano solo that answers the guitar solo. Mm-hmm. I just dig it. I mean, let's take a look at what was actually done with Tom Worman and Cheap Trick. They did In Color, Heaven Tonight, and Dream Police, three of their most iconic albums. And it just seems like this is the one thing that was the bone of contention, possibly. I don't know. I'm not trying to speak for them or anybody else. But this is the one thing that I can look at and go, yeah, I can see it here, you know. <laughs> what do you think, Brian? Well, if you... If you listen to the version that's on the the reissue of the first album, it doesn't really work. And so if that's what Tom Werman was presented with, I mean, I've heard early live version of this song too, and it's it doesn't really work. It needed production. So I think if Tom Werman sits down and listens to what he has to work with and he hears it as this kind of a song, I think it makes perfect sense. I think his approach to it made sense. Maybe... You know, a lot of people ended up not liking it, but I like it a lot. And I think it made sense to take this approach to this song. And also, you know, I think I've made the argument on the show. We've talked about this on the show before, but the version you get on Budokan is a live version of this version of the song. It's not the same as the live version of the song they did in 1975. So I don't think you get what you get on Budokan without this approach to the song, because 
you know, it, it definitely, the arrangement definitely kind of changed. We've defended Tom Werman a lot on the show because of all the shit that he gets, and uh, and unfortunately, the poor guy gets it for more than just cheap trick. <laughs> He's really confused by all the bands that complain about him: Motley Crue, Twisted Sister. You know, they all had huge hit records with him, and uh, and then later on, you know, twenty years later, they decide that they weren't happy with what he did on the record that made their career. You know, like Twisted Sister, but um. Yeah, I, I love this version. I think it makes sense, in my opinion. I know a lot of people won't agree with me, but I think if you listen to what they had to work with, it made a lot of sense to approach it this way. It was it was one approach to take, and I think if, if Tom Werman wanted to make it this kind of a song, he did a great job. It sounds great. I would say the production is really good for what it is. Um, it is weird that Rick Nielsen's not playing that guitar part. Yeah. But according to Tom Werman, he remembers saying to Rick, what do you think? How do you feel about this? And Rick said, you're the producer. <laughs> so, you know. <laughs> no, well, nobody, according to Tom Werman, there were no objections at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, we are like Switzerland here. We love Cheap Trick and we love Tom Werman. And the music that they made together is fantastic. That's why we're here today. So let's move on to the next song because this one's about me and Brian because we're all talk. What do you think of your all talk, Ryan? <laughs> I, I really like it. I One thing that uh, I always thought was kind of funny was uh, that, you know, the drum intro, if you, if you have it in your head right now, it almost sounds the way it's played and the tempo that it's at the quickness and that kind of stuff, it always sounded very drum machine-y to me. Mm-hmm. And I know it's not, but it always kind of sounded like, because when I was a kid and I got my first drum machine and was trying to just learn how to work it or anything, they always come with a lot of presets. Yeah. Like old organs did and that kind of thing. And man, I sure do think that there was a preset in there that they, uh, that they took from Bunny and put in that machine <laughs> because it sure sounds <laughs> like that. I love it. But it's just cool, man. It's got that quick riff. And then once again, man, here comes Tom with that big, muscular 12-string answer to that really quick guitar riff, you know?
lot of cool things about that song. You know, you were talking earlier also, I'm kind of trying to think of them in my head because they're running together, but you know, you mentioned a Robin being such a great singer mm-hmm. that we all, that we all agreed on and he can go anywhere. This one, man, he really went, it's a little bit more aggressive or really more of a throaty vocal. It's a little tougher, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a little tougher. And I really like that because I don't really can't place at least right now, my tiny brain, him singing that aggressively as far as just like the <clears throat> kind of thing in it on any other song on this record. Is there? Uh, not um, so much on this record, maybe on the first record, but, but not so much this on one. this, re- but on this record in particular, this is the one time where that kind of stands out for me. But then there's also kind of like a, a little lead guitar lick later in the song. That's very musical. It's it's not as much guitar solo as it's almost like another vocal that Rick plays where Robin sings along with him and fall with, along with the lick and falsetto. So he goes from that throaty aggressive thing to singing a falsetto along with uh, one of Rick's licks later in the song, which I think is just really cool. Mm-hmm. So you're getting all these facets of Robin Zander's vocals in one song, and I, and I love it. And it's interesting, and we were talking about the contrast and contradiction of textures. You've got this really crazy, overdriven song, and then Rick plays this like very melodic thing over top of it all that you were just mentioning. That, you know what I mean? It's just so bizarre. Yeah. And Tom Peterson gets a co-write on this one. Brian Cramp, your thoughts on your all talk? Yeah, when you look at these songs individually, I mean, for one thing, this is a weird song. And all these songs are so different. If you just look at the, if you look at Big Eyes, Down, They Want You Don't Want Me, This, they all, they all could be by different bands, you know? Which is one of the things that is so great about Cheap Trick. And that's the amazing thing about Robin Zander is, no matter what Rick Nielsen throws at him in terms of style, he can do something amazing with it and something different, you know? So he could sound completely different from the previous song. And this song sounds completely different. Sounds like a different band, you know, from the song we just heard (laughs) before it. So, but that's, you know, that's one of the amazing things about Cheap Trick and Rick Nielsen's songwriting, kind of his fearless songwriting where he just does whatever he wants. And, uh, but, and that's the thing is he had, you know, they had this stockpile of like 50 songs or something that they could choose from when they were making these records. And, and they had all these different styles. And so then you get something really weird like this that is so different from what came before it, but it's, it's great. It's really cool. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Bunny's drumming and how he's just amazingly tight. And, and like, I, I almost would have loved to heard him play on a funk album because I think he could really bring something cool to that. Yeah. I, I agree with that. I never, I never thought of that because if you listen to stuff like Ohio Players yeah, uh, right. and Earth, Wind & Fire and Funkadelic, there's always a really very, very tight thing happening with the hat, with the hi-hat. Mm-hmm. It's very tight. And there's a lot of really quick hat to snare kind of stuff on those records and you're right man he would have adapted really well it probably would have been pretty seamless for him to play on a record like that because could you imagine him on something like the ohio players when they had love roller coaster or anything like that oh my god i would have loved to have seen that he would have slid right in oh wow what might have been huh yeah 
So let's flip the album over. If if you're tanning, roll over. Now's the time to roll over, right? <laughs> <laughs> so here we are on side two with O Caroline. Thoughts, Ryan Cook. Oh, Caroline. Man, there, this is a. Uh, had I written a song for, if I had to pick one song that I would have written for my girlfriend or any, anything, it would have been this song. Because, man, I'm I'm probably sappier than the next guy, <laughs> and uh, and I just I love I love love songs and ballads and that kind of stuff, but. This one isn't, it's not a ballad, but just that whole go to the end of the world for your love is just awesome. And then the whole song is just basically, you know, professing how great, how, how great his life is because of Caroline. And man, I think he knocked it out of the park on this one. I'm a sucker for stuff like this. It's just, you know, it's just praising someone that, you know, and if this was even a real person or not. I'm going to pretend that it is because I think it's just a great ode. I love it. I often get the idea of Robin Zander being like, uh, you know, a 17 year old guy out on the girl's front porch, wearing his suits like he did back in the seventies and <laughs> just saying, I'm so in love with you. And then he'd like, love! you know, he like really gets in there and sings yeah. that. And it, and it goes yeah. on the verge from, uh, this really sweet guy to a guy who like will go literally to the end of the world for you. And like I said, there's always that tension of scree, scree, scree. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. And it's just, it's just true too, because it really isn't, it's not a ballad, but if it says everything that a lot of some true ballads have never even got to, because I'm paraphrasing, but you know, like I said, go to the end of the world for your love. And he's talking about going the world. And if there were a million girls, it's still just you and that kind of thing. And, you know, that, that is a panty wetter. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, and then when Rick brings that that really melodic part back in, it, it sounds spooky, like uh, crazy stalker kind of thing again. You know what I mean? Once again, going back to the really great point that you made earlier, that it's just like, you know, there's a tension and an ominous facet to their music that just exists in a lot of it, man. It's just so, you know, totally opposite of what's being said in the song sometimes. It's great, man. It's it's truly is a, a gift that they can do that. 
I mean, it's amazing because there are times, and, and I don't want anyone who likes Seals and Croft to think I'm slagging that them, and I don't want anyone that you know loves Cheap Trick think I'm demeaning them by saying that. But like Seals and Croft had like some amazing moments vocally with the music and and in this song are some of that same kind of thing right so you've got these this beautiful sweeping thing and then this dark thing that's just underneath the surface and i think that's one of the things that we love as cheap trick fans that keeps coming back and it separates them from so many bands right Brian, your thoughts on Oh Caroline? Yeah, this is a great song, and I I love the idea that we had Oh Candy on the first album, so now we get Oh Caroline on the next album. Um, <laughs> yeah. I I saw Cheap Trick do an acoustic show at Town Hall in like 2001, I think, and I always remember Rick before they did this song. He said something like, "You know, this next song is just A minor and G. It's." pretty stupid but i like it <laughs> or something like that he, said. And he was just really dismissive of his own song uh, <laughs> that's great well i'm one thing i'm going to take from this uh as a gift is um can you uh leaning towards the idea that possibly he went stalker at the end i'm going to say that he did let's just go there <laughs> yeah i love it that's good stuff. Yeah, you you get the contrast of uh, Rick Nielsen's <laughs> image as the weirdo and Robin's image as the heartthrob. So then sometimes yeah. you get the heartthrob singing from the point of view of the weirdo. <laughs> you know, because the weirdo great, wrote the song. Man. That, that's great, yeah. What we love about this band. Up next, a classic that such a great riff, and this is wonderful. Oh, yeah. Clock Strikes Ten. Strikes 10, Ryan Cook. Now, I'm going to have to go with the Budokan version of this. Mm-hmm. Not that I dislike 
I, I do, like I said, I love everything on this record. But uh, the, the live one has a little more teeth because he's doing the harmonics at the beginning where he's emulating the ringing of a clock, of a big, of a big clock, mm-hmm. you know? And, that, and the harmonics that he hits, uh, compare the, the studio version to the Budokan version. And just as to be expected, there's a lot more gain and a lot more push on the live one where they really ring out. They sound dirty. They sound gnarly on the live record. And, and again, that's to be expected because it's live. And there's a lot more volume and a lot more gain going on. Uh, but just that whole thing alone, when I was a kid, I can just, I don't really think that I've ever heard a clock like a big clock like that anywhere in the world where I've been, it could be from a church. It could be from a bell tower. It could be from anything. I, from, from the time I was probably eight years old, I've never heard clocks chime and not think of this song Mm -hmm. ever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) True story. My first wife and I, she had a clock that did this exact thing. Right. And during the divorce, it was the one thing I asked for. And she said, no, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh, no. oh man! All you wanted was the clock, <laughs> the cheap trick clock. Yeah, exactly. Baby, all I want is a little time. Not so much with yeah. you, but with your clock. <laughs> yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, well, we need to find you one. Did you ever find one? Did you ever find a replacement? No, not yet. It's 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 uh, low on the priority list, but someday, who knows? We need to find you one. Oh yeah. man. No, that's just what my one thing. It's just a great the descending lake da 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 that whole thing. Mm-hmm. It's just cool. I mean, you know, it's no fun interviewing somebody that gives one word answers <laughs> or descriptions. It's like your thoughts, please, for me to just go. Man, it's just cool. I know you want more than that, but <laughs> it, it is. It's just it's it's just cool, man. I just there's nothing that I dislike about the song. I just think it's great. Love it. Well, Rick Nielsen taught me everything I know about pinging on a guitar, right? Because once I heard that on Budokan, I'm like, I got to figure out how to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will tell you, when I was a kid learning to play it, being really young and really just trying to play stuff, mm-hmm. I didn't realize it was harmonics. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I would play the real notes and actually press, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it was just one of those things you figure out later when you do. But yeah, man, like I said, that's to me, every clock in the world is playing this song. Absolutely. <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Brian, your thoughts? Yeah, this is a great kind of a throwback to like Eddie Cochran or Gene Vincent or something. Oh, yeah. Right. There's a lot of that yeah. in this. I would agree. I could go with the Budokan version. And I think, this was their first big hit in Japan that kind of started the train rolling, you know, that even led to Budokan. I think that's how it went. So this was the first that's awesome. uh, huge hit single they had there. But yeah, this is a super fun song. And of course, that, that clock part is probably everybody's favorite part of the song. It's, uh, it's really fun. And it doesn't, it's not that far, it's not that far from Hello There, really, is it? No. Because... Hello, right. ladies and gentlemen. Are you ready to rock? You ready to rock? Clock strikes ten. It's Saturday night. I mean, it's very celebratory. It's very here we are. Let's do it, kind of thing. Time to open up the show. Let's get going. Yeah, man. Yeah, awesome. Our next track is Southern Girls.
This is such a cool song and uh, love it to pieces. Ryan, your thoughts on Southern Girls? Correct or incorrect in remembering that Tom Peterson is also on this one. Correct. Yes, this is the the songwriting team of Nielsen and Peterson. Yeah. So, again, I think when we started talking, you just kind of said, hey, tell me real quick about your initial association with Cheap Trick and why. This is another song to where, you know, like I said, this is only my personal take on it, but this is, I think, part of the reason why I love it so much is, again, I always saw California on, even though we took one there when I was a little kid, like in second grade, we did the Disneyland trip and that kind of stuff. But, again, I was in second grade. Right. But growing up, California represented everything that was a whole other world growing up in Kansas. It was movies. It was Hollywood. It was rock and roll. It was the beach. It was surfing. It was girls. It was girls. It was girls. Right? (laughs) Yep. Okay. And the thing was, though, you have these guys from the Midwest that know something different. They know about Southern girls. Mm -hmm. And, man... It was just, again, it was like, hey, I'm from the Midwest. And when we would tend to travel on vacations as a kid, we would go to places that were closer, which tended to be places more considered the South, like Mm -hmm. Tennessee and Kentucky and that kind of stuff, which is still considered largely a part of the South. And uh, even some people, when I moved away and got away from Kansas, kind of thought that I was a Southern boy just because I was associated with farmland. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, stuff like this. So I kind of consider, so I thought, you know what? It's not really geographically correct, but I'll take it. So my point to that useless explanation there was, I kind of felt like I was a uh, very well-versed in Southern girls. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like having grown up uh, more around that than I did the West Coast and California girls and that kind of stuff. It's just, you know, I love the sentiment of the song so much. Uh, musically, I love that they actually kind of included a, p- a piano in it again. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. just, I want you to want me, like just piano in the courses, the hand claps, just little stuff like that to mm-hmm. go along with it. I, I just love stuff like that. And um, if I remember right, towards the end or right after the second course, there's a time change in this song. Remember the where it speeds up? Yes. Yes. I love that. I love that. It's just like a really cool left turn that it takes. And it's short before it goes back into the regular tempo of the song and everything. But, uh, you know, man, anything to do with Southern Girls... I'm okay with. <laughs> I, I, I'm okay with it. Yeah, me. Yeah, there's something about a wonderful Southern girl saying something that sounds like melted butter, and I melt right along with it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I love it. I love it. Which is one of the reasons I love Nashville and it, all of that. Yeah, yeah. Brian, your thoughts? Yeah, it's such a great song, such a great pop song, and one of those songs it's like how was this not a hit single you know and how is this not a staple of classic rock radio to this day you know it just doesn't make sense and we should probably dispel the myth was it is rick the one who has said that story that this was actually about girls from southern canada (laughs) (laughs) if somebody has said that but but then bunny pointed out Bunny Carlos pointed out that when they wrote this song, they hadn't been to Canada yet. Because <laughs> this is a real early song. It goes all the way back to 75 or so. Yeah, but as someone that lived up north, I can tell you that the girls would come down from Canada. And it was always great because there's, again, something about that accent, right? It just make you melt in a different <laughs> way. But uh, like an ice cube. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I get it. Make you melt like there an ice go. cube. We love Canadian yeah. girls. That's awesome. We love girls everywhere. Sure. Yeah, like I said, it was always the sentiment of just being like everything was, you know, growing up, it was California girls and it was California with this whole of the world and everything. And like I said, I just considered it those guys being me being Midwest like they were and singing about something from the South was cool because I could relate. And the girls, I could definitely relate. It's just awesome. Good stuff. Plus, you imagine Daisy Dukes. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, it was a great center. He's like, yeah, I've been to California, but, you know. Southern yeah, yeah. Yeah, he says that. That's right. Yeah. He says that. It's fantastic. It's good stuff. Up next is what I feel is anybody who's been in a relationship, this song is for you. Because you just want to be able to have fun. You just want to. Can't we go back to when things were just good? Come on, come on. Don't ruin this tonight. You know, don't get your attitude. Let's just have fun like we used to, right? So Ryan Cook, this is one of my favorite songs. This is one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs. I love this song. Come on, come on. Come on, what do you think about this one? I go ahead and agree with everything you said. It's a very be in the moment song. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about the like, come on, let's just enjoy this for what it is. Let's be in the moment. Uh, that We've all lived that. And it's just a great feeling. And you can always reflect back to when you felt like that. You know what I mean? If it's not, if you're not currently in it, you can always recall that feeling. I love that. But again, like I said, man, I just, it, it really stuck with me what you said earlier because I was thinking the same thing myself this morning about, you know, just it could be something kind of dark feeling or just how they have this juxtaposition kind of the way a riff can be dark or ominous and meet something that isn't. I think this song has just like a, a tense buildup mm-hmm. in the intro. And again, it just, you know, echoes what your sentiment that you said earlier. And I really, really love that about this. You know, the song itself, I think, is structured great. But something that um, always stands out to me is when they're saying, um, come on, come on. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's really snotty. Yeah. They're really getting into it. And I just love that really snotty delivery that they do on the come ons and the yeah, yeahs, man. I just think that it, that's one of my favorite parts of the song is just the delivery of that part. Mm-hmm. Really love it. And it's just fun to sing along with, man. That's a good Windows Down song. Damn straight it is. Love, love. But I think this is definitely one of my favorite songs from the entire Cheap Trick catalog. I always am just thrilled, thrilled, thrilled 
if I get the opportunity to hear it live anywhere. I love it. Love it. It's just, just uh, yeah. And, you know, there's the, like, for example, Robin's doing such a great job with that counter vocal while they're doing the, come on, come on, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. And he's doing that every day, every day, I come a little close to my face. A little. It's almost like it's a guitar part. Like he's singing something that sounds like it could be played on the guitar, but he's doing it vocally. Do you know what I'm saying? I don't know. I probably don't have the musical vocabulary to say what I'm... No, I know exactly. No, you made perfect sense. I get it. And the way that you sang the come on, come on, that, that's exactly how they're doing it. Mm-hmm. It's very snotty attitude. It's like they're really saying come on. I, I love it. That's just really, really good stuff there. They nailed it. But this isn't the kind of song you sing to somebody on a first date or the first year. Nope. It's after you've been together for a while. Come on, don't fuck up tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just, it's Saturday night. I've been working all week. Yeah. Don't hold back on me. Come on, let's do this. Brian Cramp, your thoughts on Come On, Come On. Oh, yeah, I agree with everything. This is one of my favorite Cheap Trick songs. I have a special kind of love for Cheap Trick songs where Rick Nielsen's backing vocals play a big role in the song and uh i also love a song where the melody on the verse is even better than the melody on the chorus like i I love the verse melody of this song so much and it's it's so singable like how could you see them play this live and not sing along you know it's almost impossible it's yeah it's complete classic it's like the Beatles on steroids to me. Like there you go. One of those early Beatles songs, but on steroids. Right. So is this the track of the album for us? Is Come On, Come On the one that we all like the most? or? God, it's this or Big Eyes. <laughs> it's one or the other, but yeah. You know what? And, and Southern Girls is way up there for me, too. Right. This is this is yeah. Is that people ask you guys, probably ask you this all the time. Like if they ask you about Cheap Trick, Van Halen, or... They're like, what's your favorite album? And they ask you, does your answer change throughout the year? Oh, yeah. 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 So so I kind of feel this record is going to be that way for me. I, if you ask me today, is this my come on, come on? Probably, yeah. If you, we talk again next week, I'm probably going to tell you it's Southern Girls. Mm-hmm. It's just, man, it, they're all just so good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They really are. What's weird is these first three albums, in my mind, they're so much the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I look at it as one big unit in a way, even though it's got different producers, different album covers, right? But it it's so concise, so perfect. It's just wonderful. Up next is the final track on the album, So Good to See You.
So good to see you. Ryan Cook, take it away. First of all, I really like this song. I love this song. I love all of them. Um, It's a trip because is it him singing, I've been gone, I've been gone so long, I've been on the road, you know, I'm so happy to get home and see you. Or could it be someone singing to him? Is is his point of view where they can't wait for him to get home? Or is it either of those? Hmm. I don't know. Because, you know, he has the whole, you know, so good to see you. I couldn't wait another day. You know, they know that, you know, they want you to stay. I actually pulled up the lyric on this one because I was thinking about that as I listened to it today when I was brushing my teeth. (laughs) But then, you know, then he's like home in one week, getting so much closer all the time. Seems like overnight. It's better that it'll be a surprise. It's just, uh, you know, melodically and everything, it's all there. I love it. I think it's about, is it him missing someone and he's glad to come home? Yeah, it almost seems like a bit a uh, a road song, like in the way that Kiss is coming home to you, right? Well, see, that's the thing I was going to ask you. That's why, that's why I'm not sure. Because there is one thing, and there are a lot of relationships on the road that are just on the road, and it's the kind of thing. And that's where he says... I can't expect to be a household word. I don't mind. Just let me inside. Uh-huh. Does that mean I'm just going to see? And if you're not me a household word, that means I'm not going to be around a lot. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just being looking at it. It's uh, I kind of like it just because I'm not sure if he's talking about his girlfriend. He's going home to see if he had one or it's just someone that he sees on the road. And I'm not a household word, but it's going to be good to see it. Uh, once again this year or whatever you know what i mean yeah i don't mind just let me inside right <laughs> yeah 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 exactly i can't expect to be a household word i don't mind just let me inside you know i don't expect to be seen or heard i don't mind i've got nothing to hide and then later doesn't say we couldn't get to be too close friends you won't mind if you've nothing to hide see i i've never really thought about it but i think you're onto something here <laughs> could be or I could be nuts, which I probably am anyway, but yeah. So it's kind of the opposite of a road song like uh, Journeys Faithfully or Kisses Coming Home. It's the opposite of that. It's like could be he's going to the home on the road, right? And for a band that tours so much, <laughs> the hardest working band in show business, right? With no disrespect to James Brown, but uh, these guys were road dogs. They are. They still are. Yeah, they still are. Brian Cramp, your thoughts on So Good to See You? Well, I could burst the bubble and say this song was written before they were road dogs. <laughs> well, the, that's true. But also, I will tell you this. It's like just having the, the cool uh, opportunity to be in that position. It's, it's easy to write about stuff you've done, but a lot of guys sit and dream about stuff they want to do. Mm. Right, right. So, you, know, right. You, you know what I mean? So you never know. Well, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, that's cool. Well, I think I'm not sure if it was written before he went to Philadelphia or if Rick wrote this in Philadelphia. But this, since this song actually goes all the way back to Sick Man of Europe, mm-hmm. and it was that the original title was I'm a Surprise, and but it oh, was wow. most of the most of the song because you can hear it. You can hear the ver- there's a there's a Naz bootleg that they put it on because Stuky from Naz was the singer on it. And, uh, I mean, I'm sure it's on YouTube and you can hear it. And, um, so yeah, it, the, the lyrics are kind of strange. Actually, uh, 
I have a picture of the handwritten lyrics for this that were at Rick's picks where it says I'm a surprise at the top. Um, but yeah, so this was even before Cheap Trick uh, that Rick had this song. So um, yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe he was writing, maybe he was imagining himself as a touring musician, which is what he aspired to, to become, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. But it also could have been like on a one level and then later it gets to another level. You know what I mean? Sure. He might have been going to Poughkeepsie, you know, or Peoria. <laughs> Just because you're not <laughs> going good, to the... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Rick, he was, already, he was already married. He was already married. I think he got married in 69. So. Oh, wow. Crazy. Very cool. Which probably explains the come on, come on lyrics. So there were... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there it is. Total relationship song. Yeah. So this is such a great album. There was a 1998 reissue of In Color, which featured five bonus tracks, including the B-side to I Want You to Want Me, Oh Boy, and Good Night, and a live show closing variation of Hello There. The 1998 reissue tracks are as follows, Oh Boy, instrumental version, Southern Girls 1975 demo, Come On, Come On 1975 demo, You're All Talk, Live at Whiskey A Go Go 1977, and Good Night live at the whiskey a go-go 1977 so on the reissue you actually wind up with good night now ladies and gentlemen being, <laughs> being the album's closer nice but it always throws me off like if i ever have somebody listen to the first album or in color as much as i love these reissues and love what they have on them i always want to make sure that they get the original 10 song version. You know what I mean? Cause there's something different about the album, not ending where it does. Yeah. Well, something else is, um, the, I don't know if you guys will notice, have noticed this, but like, for example, like I told you, I knew I was going to talk to you. So I wanted to hear the record again this morning. And then I went and looked at it on iTunes mm -hmm. and I just pulled up in color uh, as a purchase, like if I was going to purchase the whole body of work, their album, I'm using air quotes on iTunes, mm -hmm. it's not listed in the actual album sequence. Really? And that bothers me because I do know that bands take a lot of time actually getting fights <laughs> over album sequences. Mm -hmm. They do. There's, it, it, you know, it's not just pulling, you know, for the most part, it's not just pulling names out of a hat and deciding the sequence of an album, album titles on a hat. It doesn't work like that. There's segues and there's, and you know, people have really good arguments or reasons as to why they think one song should follow another. And uh, so to answer your thing, when you said, when they, even though there are reissues and stuff and they go back to the original, it's go back to the original in the sequence. It was meant to be heard. I think that's real important. Uh -huh. Cause imagine this. What if hello there was song number four ah. on side one doesn't make any yeah. sense <laughs> no nope. and it, it, it's completely is aside from the point that they wanted to make mm -hmm. so while i do agree go back uh just kind of do the homework and and try and listen to the album in its original distributed sequence because i think that's a big deal mm -hmm. yeah that's that's one of the really lamentable things about the digital age is how the whole concept of what an album is has just been destroyed you know oh caroline's the first song on side two but what the hell does that mean on iTunes, right? So right, number yeah. six. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean. Yeah, no, it's a trip. Uh, I do want to uh, 
say one thing though, uh, just a couple things, if you guys will indulge me, is um, you would talk to them just being the hardest working band and and road dogs and that kind of thing. And I mentioned that they, I recently saw them in Nashville here just not too long ago, and they've always been incredibly kind and way way nicer than they've ever needed to be to us or to me and everything. And I really 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 am fortunate to have been able to talk to those guys and and spend time with them and everything. I will tell you this, they tour without ego. Mm-hmm. And I've noticed that. And by that, I mean, they don't care if they close a show or if they go on before somebody or they're part of a package tour. I've never seen those guys carry ego anywhere. And if they have, that's fine. I have not witnessed it. And, and a car. so just aside from being a really hardworking band, I just wanted to make it a point that if anybody hears this and ever wondered that they are a band without ego, it's uh, they're like, they're very comfortable with who they are and their body of work and confident in it. And uh, they're just such a, a great, great live band and good people. And it's cool to see a band without ego because there are a lot of bands that refuse to go on after so-and-so or refer, refuse to go. I can't go on before this. They have to go on after. They're not about that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's awesome. And you were lucky enough to join them on stage. Yeah, it was it was great, and they, you know, that was Robin and Rick asked us to come out and sing along, which was a lot of fun. And then there hasn't been a time in the last few years where I've gone to Cena where they haven't invited us to come up on stage and actually watch the show. So they are good, good dudes, really good guys. And I know that 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 was a real thrill for you and Jeremy and Phil to get to sing back up with Cheap Trick live <laughs> on stage. <laughs> yeah. That was great. It was just, it was just fantastic night all around. It was really good. Another great moment where you pinch yourself and say, how the hell did this happen? Right? Yeah. Cause you know, I always associated cheap trick with kiss, just like mm-hmm. I've always associated rush with kiss. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm happy the bands are friends because no other reason I'm happy to hear that than the happy, than, than to hear the two bands I really adore didn't get along. Right. So I love hearing that they get along. I know they toured together and uh, I know they maintain friendships over the years. And so being able to be a part of both camps is just beyond dream stuff. It's great. Mm-hmm. We love cheap trick here. Yeah. I'm so glad to finally have you come on the show. Me too. It was a long time coming, but it sounds so sweet. <laughs> so glad to have you here, brother. Appreciate it so much. And thank, yeah. And you know, I, I remember our conversations about it at the Nashville Rock and Pot Expo. And it was really great to sit with you and be able to talk to you and do all that and everything and, and all that kind of stuff. So thank you guys for having me. I learned a lot. Uh, you guys definitely uh, hold the cheap trick facts and info. You're, you are my new source. So I learned <laughs> a lot just by listening to you guys talk about stuff that went down. And uh, I'm definitely going to look for that re record. Uh, later this afternoon when I'm done. Excellent. Well, I, I'm not just trying to shine your apple or anything, but I really appreciate you, Jeremy, and Phil. I love you guys, and uh, you guys have done so much to help other people. You, you, I know you guys have went out of your way. If if you could help bring a smile to someone's day, do some charity work, and I'm just blown away by your generosity. And love the rock and roll spirit. Love you. Just want you to know that. And of course, we will we will have to get our band together. Remember the the fuckface four. <laughs> Please, we we can do it. Yeah, we, 
we gotta do it. We gotta do it. We we gotta do it. It would be a it would be a disservice to all if we didn't. That's right. But <laughs> <laughs> but I you know this is coming from my heart. I just want you to know that, brother. So I adore you guys, and you know, like I said, much love to you, and you know, thank you for being supportive, and um, you know. The good news is, is I know that you're not, you guys aren't just lip service and I'm not either. If we say we're going to do something, we'll do it. And, you know, scheduling be damned. It's just hang in there until we make it happen. And I'd love to do this again with you guys. So, you know, if you ever need me, you have my cell. Absolutely. I'm, I'm easy to reach. I'm easy to reach. So just. We'll put up the bat signal. Reach out to me, on the, put out the bat signal and I'm on board. All right. Well, thank you for being on this episode of Cheap Talk as we look at the first three albums. We'll be back on the next episode with one of your hetero life partners, one of your partners in crime, Phil <laughs> Schaus of The Rock and Roll Residency. Yeah. All right. Yeah, you know, I call he and Jeremy the Doubleman twins. Yeah, so all right. Well, long All live right. the rock and roll residency. Long live Ryan Cook and long live the fuckface four. So we will see you. <laughs> Thank you guys. <laughs> Thanks, right. Ryan. Much love to you guys. Thank you. Talk to All you right. soon. Be Bye-bye. good. Brian, do you want to say good night now, ladies and gentlemen? Good night now, ladies and gentlemen. Good night now, ladies and gents. We will see you. Bye. By the way, I had love a thought it. about the gods. Okay. Remember them? Sure. They had that song, you know, the gods of rock and roll machines and all that. And, and it's like, I remember people at the time comparing them to Van Halen. Yeah. But it's like, those guys had like no sexuality to themselves at all, right? It was just just straight ahead music. But like, Diamond Dave allowed there to be like the pop sensibilities and, and a sexuality and a wink and a smile. And that was something that the gods didn't have that Van Halen did have. You know what I mean? I do. It just shows why one failed and burned out and one kept going. But uh, anyway, that'd be, I just that'd saw, be great to compare. Good idea. I just, I just saw, was it in Tiger King or, or Ozark? Or, I just saw something where there was a song. It was a female singer, and she was saying M I double S I double P I, but it wasn't the God song. Really? <laughs> he, yeah. It's so funny. It's so funny that you mentioned because I just finished Ozark new season last night. Okay. Yeah. So I don't remember it in that, and I watched Tiger King in one day, all six of those, and it, <laughs> 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 we're all on the same binge schedule. Yeah. I heard it. It's something. I was like, "What the hell? They stole, they stole M I double S I because you know that song by the Gods." I, I yeah, think it's absolutely. so. It's so funny, and uh, oh, I and I heard funny. that. I was like, "What the hell?" <laughs> <laughs> I don't okay, know what have... it was in that I that okay. I watched recently. We're gonna have to retrace our steps and figure out that what that was because that's gonna kind of drive me a little crazy now. Yeah. Well, oh man, what else have I watched? We just finished Ozark last night. So we're going to figure that out. And uh, please pass a message on to Jeannie. I want to talk about her career, her soaps and glow and all that stuff. So I am your direct link. All right, brother. She'd love to do it. Okay, guys. Okay, we will see you. I'm going to jump. I'm going to take a quick break. I got another 1230, so I'm going to keep going. All right, Terry. All right. Bye, guys. We'll thanks. Yep. thanks. Bye. Ryan. Bye. Bye. All right, we'll see you. All right. Bye. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. 
Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap trickin'.